Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, September 19th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Obama, good president, smart guy, poor political analyst, blamed the closeness of the current presidential race on the media. Quote, this should not be a close election, but it will be. And the reason it will be is not because of Hillary's flaws, but rather because structurally we've become a very polarized society, he said at a fundraiser. Ah, it was a fundraiser. That explains things. He was saying things that people in the audience wanted to hear. Things like this. If all you're doing is watching Fox News and listening to Rush Limbaugh and reading some of the blogs that are churning out a lot of misinformation on a regular basis, then it's very hard for you to think that you're going to vote for somebody who you've been told is taking the country in the wrong direction. Wrong. 44% of Americans do not listen to Rush Limbaugh or watch Fox News. If the media is to blame, which is everyone's favorite sport, I put the blame not on the misinformation of Rush. That has already been priced into the fact that, you know, 20% of the electorate is rabid right wing. I do not put the blame on the cable news industry that they trained their cameras on Trump during the primary. In fact, I don't blame the media at all. I don't think it's the media's fault. But if you were to ask me what's the media's biggest misdeed, the mainstream, lamestream media, I would say it's the reporting on the Clinton Foundation. And one of the main misreporters was the New York Times. The AP was the worst, the most egregious. They did that article on the appearance of optics of a scintilla of a whiff of misdeeds. They reported on all these requests to see Hillary Clinton, and the requests were all ignored or they were honored, but they were honored because the people requesting it were Nobel Prize winners or heads of state. Okay, but the New York Times was one of those newspapers, one of those news outlets really eager to pursue Clinton Foundation stories, and that's fine, but they didn't find anything, but they still wrote them up like it raised questions. Newspapers' job to provide answers, but when it comes to powerful political figures, raising questions is journalism enough, I guess. But what the New York Times did well showed up on Sunday. They polled Americans on what Americans knew about the Clinton Foundation, and what Americans knew was wrong. They were factually incorrect. Researchers listed a bunch of charitable works, some of which the Clinton Foundation did and some of which it didn't do. And it was worse than random what people said the Clinton Foundation did. The only activity that the majority of Americans thinks the Clinton Foundation does is set up speaking gigs for the Clintons. It does not do that. 47% of Americans thought the Clinton Foundation combats AIDS in Africa. And it does do that. 10 million people get drugs, not just HIV drugs, from the Clinton Foundation. Clinton Foundation also works to provide nutritious meals in U.S. schools. 17 million U.S. school children help by that. But only 29% of people polled knew that the Clinton Foundation did that. 39% of people polled knew, or thought they knew, because it's not true, that the Clinton Foundation manages the personal finances of the Clinton family. And 40% thought the Clinton Foundation gave money to Democrats. A foundation cannot do that, though the Trump Foundation did. They were fined. 
If you were a journalist and you covered the hell out of the Clinton Foundation and you couldn't find a quid pro quo, or really, let's be honest, even a plausible case that favors were given, and all you came up with was a whiff and an appearance, and now the American public is so misinformed about what this very good foundation does, I say to you, member of the media, great job. You're not swaying the election. You just committed the worst bit of reporting by the people who should know better. On the show today, I spiel about the frightening events of this past weekend, two bombings, a stabbing, and a captured suspect. Did you know that every victim has now been released from the hospital, though? No fatalities. Everyone's fine. But first, I do love talking about politics, but it's almost always presidential. Sometimes we get to the statewide races. Let us, for once, concentrate on state legislatures. That's where the sausage is, if not made, then regulated. So if you're like me, or at least travel in my media circles, you hear a lot of questioning about what's wrong with the Republicans and can the party ever recover? And I always say, guys, sure, they've got a crazy person running for president. But during the course of the Obama administration, did you know that Republicans have won 910 seats in different state legislatures? Yeah, Republicans now control 56% of the country's 7,383 state legislative seats, which is up 12% since 2009. Now, this is often noted but dismissed like, oh yeah, the LA Angels might be bad, but they have a good minor league system. Two things. It's much more important than that. And B, the LA Angels have a terrible minor league system. Well, Reed Wilson covers state legislatures and he's going to explain what's going on with them and why they're really important, even if you don't care about the inner workings of Arizona. Reed is national correspondent who covers a lot of state politics for the uh, congressional paper, The Hill. Hello, Reed. And I'm also a Seattle Mariners fan, so I'm very happy that the LA Angels are terrible right now. (laughs) They're terrible. They are the worst. So let's get right to it. Uh, South Dakota's 18th, Matt Stone of Yankton. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to ask you to name every one of the 7,000 legislative seats. But give me the view from a few miles above. Aside from whatever the different states decide, why is this important to people who don't live in that particular state? It matters because these state legislators are actually the ones who are drawing the lines under which we elect our members of Congress. So uh, every 10 years, the census happens, and then the, the number of you know, the 435 House seats in Congress are apportioned to the various states so that when you know, one state starts growing you know, crazily, uh, they get a couple of new seats. Uh, Washington State, my home state, gained an extra seat in the last round of reapportionment. And then when redistricting comes, the guys who are in in charge of drawing the district lines in Washington State have to sit down and they draw 10 districts instead of nine. That means that a whole bunch of people get shuffled around. And if you're doing it right, if, if you're, uh, I shouldn't say doing it right, but if you're doing it for partisan gain, even without gaining a seat, you can engineer these district lines in such a way that you benefit. I'll give you an example. In, in North Carolina in 2012, after the redistricting process, Democratic candidates for Congress got more votes than Republicans. Republican candidates for Congress across the state. However, because of the ways the districts were drawn, Republicans won nine of the 13 seats. Democrats won four of the 13 seats. Uh, they effectively drew lines that concentrated Democratic voters in a few small districts and gave Republican voters, uh, the, well, or spread Republican voters around to enough other districts that they were able to win. 
export that to the national map. And there's a reason that the vast majority of seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are not competitive. They're not competitive because state legislators have drawn lines that essentially protect the vast majority of incumbents. And so as we trickle down, who you elect to a state legislative seat can ultimately end up deciding who becomes the next speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. So states are the laboratories of democracy and they use their experiments to thwart democracy on the national <laughs> level, you're saying? Well, so back in, and this is nothing new, by the way, the, the term no. that we use for this gerrymandering actually comes from a political cartoon in a Boston newspaper in 1812 when uh, Elbridge Gerry... I governor, knew it! I knew you were going to get it right, go. Reed. It's Gerry. His last Gary. name is Gerry, but we call it gerrymandering. Yes, I we, knew we you would do know that. <laughs> and now this is the part that I get wrong. I think he drew the Federalists into one district, and then his party, the Democratic Republicans, won all the seats around it, but it could be reversed. I, I confused yeah that sometimes. But it works. Who, who talks about Federalists today? Right. And, and the uh, editorial board of this Boston newspaper, uh, drew, or the editorial cartoonist, drew this cartoon. He said the district looked like a salamander. It was Gary's salamander. It's a gerrymander. That's how we get the word. But there's also other, as Republicans do well, there are other implications. Chris Solentrop, who was on the show, talked about this in Kansas. As more and more Republicans take over state legislatures, that has a big impact. Some could argue even a bigger impact on the lives of those citizens than the national politics. Yeah, here's the big irony about politics. My, my rule of thumb is always that uh, the closer an elected official is to you, the more uh, impact they have in your daily life. Your city council member has more of a, an impact on your life than your state legislator, who has more impact than your U.S. congresswoman, uh, and more impact than the president. Uh, right, so, right. But people you know, in Texas and people in the Dakotas and people in uh, California and people in places where the presidential election won't even be competitive are paying a lot of attention to the presidential election, and they might be mm -hmm. really informed that have no idea who their state legislator is. Yeah, and take a look at the difference between a place like Kansas, where, by the way, the Kansas Republicans went so far to the right that there's now a pretty significant chunk of, of members of the state legislature who have told the governor, no, we're not going to go any farther, and they're joining up with Democrats uh, to sort of moderate the, the agenda. So contrast what's happened in Kansas with what's happened in California, where the state legislature is very liberal and has gone just about as far left as they possibly could. You know, Louis Brandeis made that Laboratories of Democracy comment. Uh, he was right. We're seeing as as we become polarized in you know in, in national politics, and as DC grinds to a halt, the states are really experimenting and they're trying things in vastly different ways. Uh, you know, it, it, you sort of wish you could fast forward 20 years and see what the outcomes were, but we're going to have to wait for those outcomes. Uh, you know, but the states they're trying everything on everything from voting rights to uh, marijuana legalization to uh, you know the, the solar panels that are on right. your on your rooftop. Right. V varying fracking policies. I mean, very different uh, decisions based on different states. But I want to go back for a second to the uh, gerrymandering question. This happens, as you say, uh, in the z in the one years, because the census comes out in the zero years and then they reapportion the ones. So why is uh, an election that takes place in 2016 so important for that? 
because the Democrats find themselves in such a deep hole. You, you mentioned uh, that, uh, what, what was it, uh, Republicans hold 56% of uh, the, the state legislative seats. When you take a look at, at the actual legislative chambers, it's even more than that. Right. There are 99 state legislative chambers in the country, two in every state except Nebraska, which only has a unicameral legislature. God knows why they did that, but they did. Uh, of those 99 legislatures, 69 of them are controlled by Republicans. Democrats only hold 30 of them, which means that effectively Republicans are drawing the lines and controlling the, the agenda in state legislators. Uh, in, in the vast majority of states, all of those gains came in the midterm elections in 2010 when Republicans did so well and took back the House, and then Republic, the midterm elections in 2014 when Republicans did so well and took back the Senate. They also took back a whole bunch of these state legislative chambers, which effectively means because the legislators in so many states are drawing the lines that Republicans are the only ones at the table with a pen. The Democrats are sitting on the sidelines in, in a huge number of states. And Republicans have even done well in blue states. They, they control, I think it's 23 chambers in states that President Obama won. Uh, so that tells you that at, at the down-ballot level, Republicans have done well, and because they're, they've got so much control over this system, they're able to essentially write themselves into a majority in Congress. Now, I have heard that. I have heard essentially the argument that Republicans are more organized and they're better at these smaller races for a lot of reasons. Yet, a couple things. One, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the strength of Republican candidates in state races, what that really says about the notion I started with, that the Republican Party is in trouble. I wonder if the party's in trouble if they're doing so well in the state races. But the other thing is, look at the Senate. I know there's a chance that the Democrats could tie in the Senate, but the Senate has been in Republican control for a while and you can't gerrymander a state. I think there's an argument to be made that whatever the Republican brand is on a state level or just in general might be more appealing to Americans. You have a point there, and I think, I think we have to make the distinction between uh, the national Republican brand, yeah. which, which is what we think of when we think of Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or, or you know, Marco Rubio or something like that. I, I, and, Cruz and Rubio, I'll agree with. I don't know about Trump. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a national concept. You know, what is Republicanism? On the state level, though, you know, governor's races especially are fought on very different issues than, than federal races are. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are going to be talking a lot about you know national security and and the economy and things like that governor pat mccrory in north carolina and his democratic opponent are fighting over teacher pay raises and the that hb2 bathroom bill right now i mean it's a it's a totally different political conversation and a, there there is a significant number of voters who are willing to split their tickets between say a democratic presidential candidate and a republican governor or something like that consider the fact that there are republican governors right now in states like Massachusetts and Maryland, which you know Republicans are never going to contest at the presidential level, and there's still a Democratic governor of West Virginia. There have recently been Democratic governors of Oklahoma and Wyoming. People will elect somebody of the other party, specifically in a governor's race, because they sort of see governors differently than they do the rest of the party structure. Now, you said that the Republican candidates are more organized at the state level. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Hmm. What happens is, as we've seen in, in 10, in 14, and now probably in 16, uh, is that a lot of these state legislative races, you know, these guys are raising twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. They can barely communicate with their voters. They're essentially buying a whole bunch of yard signs and bumper stickers. The question is, can they actually differentiate themselves at all, or are they going to get swept up in a national wave? You 
you know, the Democrats didn't lose in 2010 because they were disorganized or because they weren't running good campaigns. They lost because there was a huge national wave uh, of voters who were sick of what was happening with Democrats in charge in D.C., and so they punished Democrats all the way down the ballot. If this presidential race becomes a blowout for Hillary Clinton, you know, State Representative X in, in you know, uh, I don't know, suburban Illinois, uh, that person has no shot of holding onto their job. Right. I agree. I have read a few articles about how big donors, specifically the Koch brothers, have targeted smaller races and it's worked. Are you saying the influence of that big money donation in the smaller races to elevate Republicans has been overstated? No, uh, it has not been overstated. If anything, it's been understated in a few kinds of races that people are only now starting to pay attention to. And I'd point to things like state judicial races. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, states that still elect their uh, Supreme Court justices, and those races are getting really expensive. Uh, In Pennsylvania this year, there was a a race for a a judgeship that nobody had ever paid attention to, and all of a sudden, you know, there's $5 million of spending uh, happening there. It's obviously happening because somebody on one side or the other uh, thinks that their candidate would rule more favorably for them. There would be a clear you know, political outcome. Uh, but the spending at the state level is tiny compared to the spending at the federal level. I was just looking uh, at some data on uh, U.S. Senate candidates uh, advertising on television. The two sides right now are north of about $450 million that they've spent advertising in U.S. Senate contests so far this year. State legislative races and, and the Koch brothers investment on, on the left, there's something called the Democracy Alliance, the groups that they all fund. You know, that total spending mm-hmm. might reach 25 million maybe 30 million this year it's going to be a drop in the bucket compared to what's the, the sort of spending happening in the presidential race in the senate race and elsewhere that doesn't mean it's nothing now one solution perhaps there are two solutions good government type solutions or depending on your perspective judicial activism solutions to the gerrymandering situation. Let's not even call it a problem. One is the Supreme Court could say that's an illegal gerrymander. I'd like you to talk about that. But the other thing, a few states have done this. They've had nonpartisan commissions. Do you see either of these as a growing trend? Uh, both of them are growing trends. The nonpartisan commission is, uh, is tricky uh, because there are two types of commissions. One is explicitly partisan. I'll give you the, uh, go back to the example of my home state of Washington. In Washington state, the leaders of the House and Senate Democratic and Republican caucuses each pick one person. So they've got four people who are going to draw the lines. They pick a, a fifth chairman who's just there to, to sort of run the meetings. By tradition, they have voted unanimously to approve the district lines. But the lines they approve, because they're D's and R's, they're approving essentially safe seats. There aren't really any competitive races in Washington state this year. It's sort of locked in as six Democrats and four Republicans, and it's been about that ratio for for quite a while now. On the other hand, there are states like uh, California and Arizona where they pick actually non-political people and non, uh, you know, people who are not part of the legislature. It's a truly independent commission, and they draw lines that have been more competitive. Um, take a look at, at a state like Iowa, where they essentially let a computer do the first draft, and then the state legislature just ratifies it. Uh, in Iowa, of the four congressional seats there, 
Two are pretty well contested. Uh, one is safe Republican, one is safe Democrat, but the other two seats are, are competitive. And that sort of competition is what good government types see as necessary to fixing the gridlock in Washington. Uh, Rod Blum or, or David Young, the two guys who hold the competitive seats in Iowa, have to go back to Iowa and say, I worked with a bunch of Democrats to get something done. Uh, and the, the thought is that would spur more competition, would spur more compromise in Washington. All right. Here's my last question. What's your favorite state house and why? In Tennessee a couple of years ago, uh, a group of, of lobbyists showed up and they were trying to essentially get the legislature to codify the formula by which Tennessee whiskey is made. Uh, they wanted to make it a premium brand, just like Kentucky bourbon or champagne or port mm-hmm. or something like that. So they ended up uh, passing this measure that codified the way that the bourbon has to be kept or the whiskey has to be kept and filtered and all that stuff. And uh, it, somebody looked at it and realized wait a second, this is just the recipe for Jack Daniels. Uh, so Jack Daniels was essentially trying to block out the rest of the, of the marketplace. Well, the one other group that uh, lobbied against it and eventually got that law overturned was the only other distillery that made Tennessee whiskey according to this law, uh, a distillery called George Dickel. Uh, turns out Dickel is owned by the same guys who own Johnny Walker, and the Johnny Walker guys were worried that the growth of Jack Daniels as a premium brand was going to cut into their market share. I had a state senator down there telling me that there were lobbyists walking through the, the state uh, house just handing out campaign checks uh, and filling in the names like as they handed them over to the state legislators. So there we go. I suppose the Tennessee state legislator has got to be the best because they spend their time debating whiskey. <laughs> Cheers. Reed Wilson covers all of this and more as a national correspondent for The Hill. Thank you so much, Reed. Thanks a lot, Mike. On tomorrow's show, Maureen Dowd has covered a couple of Bushes, an Obama, and Trump. Oh, has she covered Trump. Maureen Dowd on The Gist, right here, in these very earbuds you're listening to. The Gist, tomorrow. And now the spiel. I'm different from most people, but maybe I'm similar to most New York people. Friends from out of town got in touch with me over the weekend to ask if I was all right after the bombing. The bombing? The one where no one died? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. My sister lives in Chicago. Chicago averages 12 killings a week. I never call her to ask if she's all right. It's not that I don't feel connected to the bombing. These bombings, I should say. I'm including the one in New Jersey, the site of a fun run on Sunday. Guess what I'm going to do next Sunday? I'm doing a fun run in Jersey. Two days ago, my participation in that 5K simply said that I was a hero of cardiovascular fitness. But by next week, I will have become a hero of American resilience in the face of terror. The point is, I am a hero in many, many ways. I'm also connected to the Chelsea location of the bombing. I pass by it almost every day that I pick my son up from his school. It is four blocks away from his school, two long blocks, two short blocks. In New York, that is quite a bit of distance, actually. How much distance? Well, when I heard about the bombing, I said, Chelsea, that's near my son's school. Let me see where it was exactly. And then when I saw where it was exactly, I said, isn't that more like the Flatiron District? Actually, it's really both. That part of Sixth Avenue could be seen as Chelsea or could be seen as the Flatiron. But the fact that I was thinking of which neighborhood, what are the exact borders? And I went to look it up. It meant that I was a fairly unfazed New Yorker. Now, there were people who freaked out about this. 
They were the non-New Yorkers. I searched for information under the hashtag Chelsea on Twitter. Mistake. It turns out, this is what I learned there under that hashtag, turns out that liberals were praying, before we knew who the bomber was, they were praying that it was a white Christian. People who changed their first name to deplorable, which is actually helpful, thank you people, were asserting that before we knew who the, let me read, let me read one of these deplorable type people. Actually, this guy didn't change his name. He goes by Zachary at right wing dude. Hashtag Chelsea liberals are praying that the bomber of this in New Jersey were white Christian conservatives. Oh, Zachary, Twitter handle at right wing dude. How little you know. Liberals don't pray. Anyway, Zachary, whose Twitter bio is conservative writer. That combines two of my favorite things, conservatism and humor. Not grammar, but conservatism and humor. Shh, do not tell right-wing dude his mistake. Anyway, right-wing dude, I gotta say, I normally wouldn't seek out the radical right's take on the bombing, but since that's who was populating the hashtag Chelsea, that's who I encountered. And here's what I learned. One, liberals will not admit that there are Muslim terrorists. Two, liberals are loathe to call terrorism by its name. Three, liberals like Hillary Clinton have one solution, and that's to take away our guns. Although, aren't the mayor and governor of New York liberals? And they did get the guy right. Anyway, let's talk about taking away our guns. All right, she doesn't want to take away our guns, but gun control. There were three terrorist attacks on Sunday. There was the mall attack in St. Cloud, Minnesota. There was the pipe bomb at the New Jersey Fun Run. And there was the Chelsea bombing. Zero people died cumulatively in all these attacks. Why? Because no guns were used. That is a big part of it. Actually, let me amend my statement. One person did die. The Minnesota slasher was shot and killed, shot by a police officer. Good guy with a gun, off-duty police officer. Every one of these victims has now been released from the hospital. Let me amend that. One police officer who was shot by the alleged bomber. The alleged bomber, we got to say alleged bomber, he did manage to make bombs that went off. And even that doesn't usually happen. The list of attempted bombings where the bombs don't work is very, very long. There are the famous ones like Columbine, like Times Square in 2008, like remember this guy? FBI experts are studying an unexploded bomb created by al-Qaeda intended to blow up an American airliner bound for the United States. CIA agents in Yemen broke up that bomb plot. The government says no planes were ever in danger. And last week, we learned that in San Bernardino, those shooters were attempting to set off bombs also. It didn't work. Sometimes we know about the bombs that don't work because of the guns that do work. The guns almost always go off. And when the guns jam, it's after being used in the service of efficiently killing other people, as with the Aurora, Colorado theater shooter. And yet bombs are newsy and scary, if far less deadly. Within 24 hours of the Chelsea bombing, 24 hours on either side of the non-fatal Chelsea bombing, 10 people were killed and 33 people were injured in mass shootings in the United States. And that's just the mass shootings, and that's using the FBI's somewhat strict definition of four or more people killed or injured in one location, and that doesn't include the shooter. So if you compare the number of injuries I just said, 33 in the shootings, to the number of injuries in the bombings, the bombings seem higher. But like I said, everyone who was hurt in the Chelsea bombing and also everyone who was hurt in the Minnesota stabbings, they're all out of the hospital already. That's not true with shooting victims. 
I can't say if the New York attacker would have used guns if Manhattan didn't have strict gun laws, but it does, and he didn't, and I'm glad it does, and I'm glad he didn't. And while a bombing got the nation's attention and might shape the presidential race, a shooting would have been much more likely to be fatal. I'm not saying that Islamic terrorism isn't a scary, dangerous, and real problem. I'm also not saying it's either guns or bombs. I'm beginning to think that the definition of centrist in America today is someone who thinks we should do everything we can to prevent people from being murdered by guns and to prevent people from being murdered by bombs. And finally, let me just say, this act was terrorism because it's terrible, but we can prevent it from becoming terrorism with a capital T if we don't allow it to terrify us. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is considering a run as an independent in the Ohio 68th Congressional District. John Russell, Rick Carfagna, you're on notice. With the retirement of Shamia Fagan representing District 51 in Oregon, Chris Berube isn't sure if Janelle Bynum or Lori Chavez de Reamer is up for the job. Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, knows that in Montana's 17th district, Barnett Sporkin Morrison and Ross Fitzgerald are vulnerable, and he'd like a certain someone to throw his hat in the ring. That person, Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, who believes he could cut into the Fitzgerald coalition while usurping the Sporkin Morrison mentum that's been registering in the polls. The gist. Just asking, why won't Barnett Sporkin Morrison vow to work hard for all the citizens of District 17, including those from Wolf Creek to Belier and all of Teton County? I'll work hard to represent all citizens of House District 17, from Wolf Creek to Belier, from the Poyer to Brady, and everywhere in between, including all Teton County. Okay, you win this round, Barnett Sporkin Morrison. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.